Hello and welcome to the latest Science of Sport podcast. I'm your host Matt Solomon and today I'm delighted to be joined by Yuri Pagel. This podcast is brought to you by Hawking Dynamics, the world leader in innovative force plate technology. Hawking Dynamics takes a user-centric approach featuring a fully customizable cloud-based software that allows users to easily digest and analyze complex force plate data. The technology is constantly evolving, much like an app update for your iPhone. They communicate with users on a daily basis to make their system better. In addition to all of that, they also offer some of the most competitive prices for bilateral force plates on the market. And they're the only force plate company offering a completely wireless system. So, if you want to find out more, check out their easy intro to force plate section at www.hawkingdynamics.com forward slash blog. So, without further ado, it's time to welcome Yuri onto the show. So, Yuri, welcome to the Science Support Podcast, mate. It's fantastic to have you. Hey, Matt. Thank you so much for having me, man. It is absolutely my pleasure. Now, can you give us a quick introduction as to who you are and uh, what you've done until now? Yeah, so my name is uh, Yuri, Yuri Pagel. I am uh, an assistant strength and conditioning coach at uh, say, uh, Ajax, so that's a soccer team here in Amsterdam. Um, I now work primarily in, in soccer. Uh, my background is, however, working in basketball and in professional fighting, and I made the switch to soccer uh, two years ago now. That's football for all the non-American people, right? <laughs> exactly, that's football. So American already, mate. Right. If you if you if you wouldn't know that I'm Dutch, then you probably <laughs> no, have no you, idea. You disguise it with a fairly American uh, accent, so you're all right, mate. You're all right. <laughs> um, so you're here to discuss plyometrics in team sport athletes. Uh, can you give us a quick introduction as to what plyos are and why they're important? Yeah, um, for plyometrics, I think it's actually something that's misunderstood pretty often. Um, a lot of people think that plyometric means jumping exercises. And although that is partially and maybe largely true, um, we can't characterize every jump as a plyometric and we can't characterize every plyometric exercise being a jump. So if we look in the literature, uh, you're going to see slightly different variations of explanation of what a plyometric exercise is. But generally what we can agree upon is that plyometrics are exercises um, that obtain a higher power output during the overcoming phase of a movement. So basically that's a concentric phase, but this is due to a muscle's pre-stimulation during the yielding phase. So the yielding meaning the eccentric phase. So generally plyometric exercises are those that are characterized by a very sharp and rapid muscle lengthening followed by a very forceful muscle shortening. So we have a fast eccentric which results in a pre-simulation for a higher concentric power output. So uh, as an example here, an athlete that does a static jump, meaning they go down into the bottom of a, a squat or the bottom of their, their jump, then they pause and then they jump back up. We're not getting this rapid lengthening throughout the muscles. Now, if we were to do a counter movement jump, meaning we dip quickly before we explode back up, we can use that rapid eccentric nature of the movement to increase the power output during the concentric phase, which then, of course, results in a higher jump. So before we get into anything else, that's something that's very important to understand is what is a plyometric exercise. So that also means, again, that not all plyometrics have to be jumping exercises. We can do this for upper body exercises. We can do this for rotational exercises. There's a lot of different ways to, to use this. So consider, for instance, a medicine ball chest throw where you are laying on the ground, a partner standing 
over the top of you, drops the ball, you catch and quickly reverse throwing up the ball as fast as possible. Now we have that rapid eccentric movement, move, uh, motion, and then we have that quick concentric with hopefully a higher power output. So if we look at the def definition of a plyometric, this is now also considered something or some sort of a plyometric exercise. Why would exercise like this, like plyometric exercises, be important? Um, primarily because they're just an integral part of sport. Anything, if you look at human movement from the moment that, you know, we have kids and then they start playing around on the playground and then they start playing soccer, they start playing basketball, they start playing all these different sports. The movements that we see in those sports are highly plyometrics, plyometric. Consider something like a sprint, consider something like cutting actions or jumping actions. So if you see Julio Jones making a cut in the NFL or you see LeBron hitting a breakaway dunk or Mbappe going for a sprint, these are all movements that are highly characterized by plyometric actions. So if we want to make sure that our athletes are able to handle the stressors in sport, we have to prepare them for the stressors that they're going to be exposed to in sport, which in this case are often going to be plyometric in nature. But not only that, do we have to prepare them for the stressors, we also make sure that we can increase their outputs, aka make them better athletes. Now, what's more specific very little is going to be more specific than if we train plyometric actions to make them better, because this is likely going to transfer for stuff like cutting, jumping, sprinting, and all these other highly dominant movements within sport. So if there's something, you know, that sport coaches value, generally it's an explosive athlete. It's a fast athlete. And this is where stuff like plyometric training can really come in and prove, uh, prove handy. So in terms of when you start to implement this, um, it's not as easy as just throwing in uh, some kind of medicine ball work or jumps, etc. You've also got to consider what's going on in the sport and in the training. So what are the key considerations for you in a team sport when you're going to implement your plyometrics? Yeah, I love that question. Because um, this is actually one of my bigger pet peeves, and that's the people that are saying you need to be able to hit a 2.5 times your body weight squat or whatever arbitrary uh, weight number we're looking at before we can start into plyometrics. Now, don't get me wrong. Is there a reason for you to be generally strong? Absolutely. But the only thing that is going to prepare an athlete to do plyometrics is plyometrics. People have to understand that plyometrics are a continuum, right? So just like when you start squatting, there's a difference between a bodyweight squat and 140 kilo overhead squat. There's an inherent difference between those two. There's an inherent difference between repeated pogo jumps that are performed extensively, so submaximally, and a depth jump Furkashansky style off a 1.5 meter box. Like there's a very big difference there. So do I think that we need to be generally strong in order to do some of these more advanced plyometric drills? Yes, I do think so. But we can start and build and expose the body, expose the athletes to some of these plyometric drills by doing easier plyometric drills. So just like you would progress in strength, we need to progress our plyometric exercises too. And then if we're looking at that, so if we're talking about plyometrics, again, consider a kid. At a young age, they do all kinds of plyometric movements. If you play sports, you are doing plyometrics, very intense plyometrics even, under fatigue in a non-controlled setting. What you want to do from that young age is not – not expose them to plyometrics, you actually do, but now you want them to do it in a very structured environment where you actually give them 
the basic progression step by step by step into more intense variations once they reach a higher training age. But to me, that is not just how you progress an athlete from a young age to an older age. It's also how you look at an athlete from the start of your off season until you get towards the end of an off season, right? Because if I am coming out of a season, generally, regardless regardless of sport, you're going to have your aches, your pains, your nicks, your naggles. And then it's going to be hard to immediately jump into something very intensive, like repeated lateral bounds or depth jumping. So we probably want to run through, again, some kind of continuum or a progression throughout the uh, plyometric continuum before we get to those more intensive points, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you're basically not going to kill them when they're fatigued. Um, that sounds that sounds fairly logical. Um, and how does that look in terms of a team sport who are maybe playing every weekend? Um, how are you going to then fit that into their schedule? Um, I So if I work during the off season with athletes, again, I, all I'm trying to do is before they get to their season is to have a better athlete that it has higher outputs and is more equipped to handle the stresses of sport. So like I just said, using plyometric training can really help there because it is so specific to the movements they're going to encounter. If I have a gradual progression in plyometric load and exposure throughout the off season, I can hopefully increase their outputs, AKA have them sprint faster, jump higher, cut quicker, all that kind of stuff. And they are also exposed to some of those stressors. So their injury resiliency goes up, right? Their risk of injury goes down. Now, once I get to in-season, uh, I like using basketball as an example for this. If I work in-season and I'm working with basketball athletes. Now, basketball is characterized, if, if, if you can only think about one thing for a basketball player besides their incredible height, it's their jumping ability. Like that's what generally people are going to look at basketball player like. Okay, so jumping is super important in basketball. Every single day during practice and during games, they are going to be exposed to plyometric motions in the numbers that you wouldn't believe. Like the amount of jumps is ridiculous. The amount of cuts is ridiculous. The amount of accelerations, decelerations. So that means that if we're looking at an athlete's development and their capability to handle stress, we are probably really overflowing that one bucket, meaning plyometric movements, right? So they're already getting so much of this on court. They're already getting so much of this in practice. Now, what we can do, however, is during the season, try to fill up some of these other buckets. So if I already know that a player has a high exposure to some of these movements, I am not personally going to add more and more of the same during their strength and conditioning sessions. What I am going to try to work on is the things that they're not getting exposed to. So, for instance, for basketball, that would mean that I focus less on plyometrics and maybe I focus more on movement quality, strength, hypertrophy, all those other things that we can exert a little bit more energy to. But let's say I have an athlete that, although they have a high exposure to these plyometric movements during during their practice, they still need to work on increasing power output. I can still get some plyometric nature exercises in, but then maybe not where they leave the floor. So think a medicine ball granny toss where we release the ball down. So we let it drop. Basically, we catch and then immediately throw it back up or we do more upper body plyometrics. So there's still ways to kind of get this stuff in throughout the season without overloading that bucket with even more of the same and the same and the same than they're also already getting on court or in their sport practice. Now for some other sport, let's say it's a a non-jumping sport, maybe more like soccer or football, then we can still supplement some of these jumps in during 
your strength and conditioning sessions. But then again, it is very important to monitor what their load is on the field, pitch, court, wherever you're working, because that should influence how many more jumps and plyometric exercise you should be able to do in your strength and conditioning sessions. Because if there's one thing, it's during the season, the only thing that matters is performing. So we don't want to overstress them. This podcast is also brought to you by Flex. Flex is the latest product to enter the velocity-based training market, developed by the team at Gymware. Flex is the only laser-based training system available, and it's this unique technology that makes Flex the most accurate and reliable barbell tracking product in the sub-500 US dollar category. It's wireless, portable, and it's super user-friendly. Find out why VBT is such a powerful training method and what separates Flex from the competition at flexstronger.com. Absolutely, mate. So <clears throat> when, you're, when you're looking to build this up, um, can you give us an example of what then a training session might actually look like? That, of course, is, is super dependent on the athlete, the sport, uh, training age, where they come from, like a lot of different factors. I think if there are rules of thumb that I adhere to mostly, it is I go from fast to slow. So if I go through plyometric movements, uh, and again, I characterize something like a sprint also as plyometric. Now that's going to be the fastest movement we can do. So if, you know, we're working, we're probably going to start with something like that, some sprinting motion, uh, and then we go slower and slower. So then from there, we probably have some kind of jump and then maybe some kind of medicine ball throw, right? I would not go medicine ball throw first, then the jumps and then the sprints, because the sprints are the highest impact exercise here. They're also the fastest exercise. So I want to always prioritize those first. Let's say I am not doing any sprinting that day. I'm just doing jumps and medicine ball throws. Then maybe I'll start with the jumps and then hit into the medicine ball throws. But also if I just have jumps, again, I will look at the type of jumps that I'm doing. I will go for the most intense, fastest exercises first. And then I will slowly break it back down towards lesser impact, probably slower exercises. So if I have something super impactful, I want that first after a proper warm-up, of course, but I want that done first, get it out the way because that is the highest risk. So I want my athletes to be minimally fatigued before doing something so impactful because that's a misconception I think a lot of people have about jumping or about plyometrics is that they think that it's easy, right? Because you're not really fatigued when you're doing plyometrics. It's not like when you're doing sets of eight on a squat, on a heavy squat, you feel after you are fatigued, your body will literally tell you, please, I don't want to do another set. Please don't. But if you're jumping and you do six reps, you probably think you can go again after 30 seconds. You probably think you can do 10 sets. The thing is, stuff like this, so the plyometric movements are super impactful, means they also carry more risk. So if I do these, I need to make sure that A, I rest properly but B, that I also prioritize which kind of exercise or modalities I do first in my training sessions while we're minimally fatigued. So also, I am not going to do plyometrics the day after a game. If I have a group of athletes that have a very tough game on Sunday, I'm not going to have them come in Monday and do intensive plyometrics. That'd be a pretty bad idea because they're not ready for something so intense, if that makes sense. Well, that certainly makes sense. And is there an argument then to, to, for example, take the substitutes or the guys who didn't play for very long um, and give them a stimulus like that? Maybe they get some top-up work done. Um, you're oh. going to give them some, some plyos and they get onto the pitch for their um, – uh, whatever they want to play, four versus four plus two or whatever. 
Absolutely. So, you know, coming from my background in basketball, if I have players that are lacking um, explosiveness or something, something of that sort, generally what we'll do is we will microdose some kind of plyometric action before practice. You know, and again, it's so important that we look at the load that the players are having on court, field, pitch, whatever. And then we make the adjustments from there. So players that don't play, they miss out on those plyometric actions, while the ones that did already have been exposed to so many. So we can make adjustments there in load in our strength and conditioning sessions because one group of athletes hasn't been stressed the way the others have and probably are going to be able to get some of those training stimuli in without the inherent risks that would uh, come along with those that have played the day before. So absolutely, absolutely. I think you can make a, a fairly reasonable argument to say if you've not played uh, your basketball game of 60 minutes or your uh, football game of 90 minutes, um, then you've probably missed your biggest stimulus of a lot of those actions throughout the week yep. as long as the, the SSC coach is catered for the, the starting 11 as such. Yep. So if, if, you, if you don't split those groups and give them the extra, then you could potentially be under-training them for a number of years. Absolutely. And that's, that's part of you know, kind of individualization within your programs it's not necessarily what does each individual athlete, well, of course it is what each individual athlete needs, but it's also grouping guys based off the exposure they're getting to stress throughout the season. Because some players, they don't train as much and they don't play as much. So we can use those seasons when they're not playing to put a little bit more emphasis on certain aspects of physical development, while others, we just have to maintain throughout the season. We don't really focus on any additional plyometric work or whatever it is we're talking about. But then during the off season, we spend time on getting them better. So it's super important, like you said, to kind of bucket those athletes and to distinguish between them to make sure that we're actually giving them what they need instead of using a one size fits none kind of approach. <laughs> I think, um, yeah, you could certainly argue that the one, one size fits none in football, at least is very applicable because you're going to have some, <laughs> some great athletes who can jump, uh, yeah, huge counter movement jumps and uh, some that can jump three centimeters in the air and they just fall over. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but um, so when you've, when you've put all of this together um, and you put on Instagram, clearly, like what, <laughs> um, what, um, what can athletes expect from you when you're coaching that? So are you, are you getting like right next to them, making sure they're getting the most out of every exercise or do you let them, uh, yeah, coach themselves a little bit? How, how does that look in your training session specifically? So for me personally, I think, um, the biggest thing we need to consider in plyometric movements is that they are self-intensifying. So the better I get at a plyometric exercise, the output is going to increase. Like if I get stronger in a squat, I need more external load to get a higher stressor. If I'm doing a plyometric, if I'm doing a counter movement jump and I get better, I just jump higher and automatically it self-intensifies. But there is something that uh, that's an argument for plyometrics, meaning we don't really need any tools to get them to go to a higher level. But there's also a disadvantage there. And that is that if I am squatting my one rep max, I have to put in maximal effort, right? Because if I don't, what's going to happen? I'm going to fail the lift. But if I am doing a plyometric jump or a plyometric action, there's really no need for me to explain maximal effort unless someone tells me to or I have the, uh, the internal motivation or whatever to actually put forth that effort. 
So if you have groups of athletes that aren't self-motivated, self-driven, or understand that if you're doing plyometrics, intensive plyometrics that is, not extensive, that I need maximal effort, then you really need to get it in their system, get them to understand that it is super important for them to deliver those maximal outputs because otherwise, basically, they're not really getting anything done. So I think for... Uh, for me personally, when I am coaching this kind of stuff, the biggest thing for me is to have them understand the importance of high effort or high intense, right? Of course, I can change and adopt the exercises to make sure that they are meeting those requirements, right? You can use hurdles, boxes, you can use force velocity device, you can use all kinds of ways to measure the output, which of course then gives them feedback on whether they are actually doing something or not and whether they're getting better. Um, but I think it's still very important for them to understand. Now, secondly, I think it is very important to get the basics of movement very, very well set. Reason being, again, plyometrics is not something that's very easy once we get to the, to the tougher exercises, right? It's very impactful. It is one of the more risky methods once we get to stuff like depth jumping, repeated bounds, all that kind of stuff. So we have to make sure that the technique is really there. And now number three, I think for me personally – um, I just spend a lot of time doing this kind of stuff for me. So in my own training, do a lot of plyometric kind of exercises to make sure that I understand what they feel like. So I, then I can also understand what kind of things I can use to cue to make them give me more intent. I think that's, that's the important one, right? So the, the understanding what it feels like, understanding what it's like to either be coached or to coach others. Um, and then to use your words or actions to get that, uh, that change or that adaptation that you want to see in the movement. I think that's, uh, that's a really interesting and, uh, and key point. And that's um, coaching, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And how you, how you do that, whether you, you train yourself, whether you train others, whether you, uh, get trained by someone. Um, yeah, all great options as long as you have that, uh, knowledge and capability in the day. Yep. So, uh, before we round off, I want to ask you one horrendously tricky question. Um, <laughs> what is the one thing that you see or do differently, which the world can learn from? That I do differently. I, I mean, you know, everything we're doing, some Soviet in, in 1976 probably already did it, right? I mean, that's, that's <laughs> one of the bigger things I always tell myself. When, when you're trying something, you're doing depth jumps off a one-meter box because you're playing around and you're experimenting and you really want to tear off your Achilles. You're like, you know, oh, wait, you look up a video and someone, someone in the 1970s already did it. So I don't think there's really anything that I do that different. Um I pride myself on experimenting a lot in my own training. I train relatively hard uh, and I make time for it. I think it's very important. Um, I think for me personally, at least it creates buy-in for my athletes because they understand that in most movements that they're going to be doing, I am going to hopefully outperform them. Well, I mean, I hope they outperform me, but on the other hand, I'm very competitive. So I hope I outperform <laughs> them. I think that creates buy-in. But also, like I said, it allows me to feel what they're going to be feeling. I think that's so underrated. Like there's so many times where I've thought of an exercise or seen an exercise and I thought that's freaking brilliant. And then I do it and then it's like, it's not. Or uh, I'll do an exercise and I feel a certain thing and then I try to correct myself, adjust the position. And then I f it feels much different, feels much better. And then from there, I can kind of give that cue to another athlete, see if it works. And if it fixes them, then I can consistently keep on using that for more and more different athletes. So 
by experimenting so much in my own training sessions, I am just able to get a better feel for what it feels for them, right? If you never train, if you never do some of the stuff your athletes do, you probably won't understand what you're giving them. So it goes, it's so easy that if, if you've never grinded out a five by five squat, then you probably won't understand what that's going to feel like at the end of a grueling season during a strength conditioning session. You're playing games, you have practice, and you're also making them grind a progressive overload five by five. If you've never done that in your life and really grinded out, really went for, you know, trying to go and progress, then you're never truly going to understand, in my opinion at least, what that's going to feel like to the athlete. And then you can already imagine if you do understand how fatigued you feel after, how horrible it must feel if you also have sport practice and you probably don't even care about the gym that much. Yeah. And imagine you've already had a crap week and exams are failing and exactly. uh, your boyfriend or girlfriend yeah. is, uh, is being yeah. annoying and the coach is on your case. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I can imagine. And strength coach makes you do five by five. <laughs> so the, the rule here is no five by five. No, um, yeah. mate, that's absolutely fantastic. Uh, could you give us a 30 second summary as to what we covered and then we'll uh, leave you for your evening. 30 seconds. Um, so for me, the big thing about plyometrics is don't underestimate their value as they're so specific to movements in sport, they are going to inherently decrease your risk of injury if progressed and done properly. And they also have the opportunity or the, the potential basically to increase your outputs in some of the most important movements in sports, such as cutting, jumping, and sprinting. So if you're going to be doing these plyometric movements, though, make sure that you progress them properly and also take into consideration what is happening during sport practice and that you make the adjustments if you are in a, a period or in a phase where sport practices and games are a factor. I think those are the biggest things to take away. Um, if, if I could say one thing for the plyometric stuff, I'd read into uh, Yuri Verkashansky stuff. Um, if you could, and if you have the time, I think it's really in depth. I mean, he's the, the godfather of plyometrics, so it's probably best to just go straight to the source. I remember I've, I've read a lot of his stuff and I've seen some of uh, the presentations from his daughter and those really helped me understand what plyometrics are and also what diff what creates the differentials between different kinds of plyometrics, right? So for me, uh, if I could give people one tip, if they're trying to get better at understanding plyometrics and implementing them, I'd say those are the first things. And then secondly, play around with it yourself before you make someone else do it because they are really, really much tougher uh, and more demanding than they look. Yuri, massive thanks for today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much, Matt. Cheers, buddy. And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks to Yuri for all of his hard work on today's podcast. I really enjoyed it, and I'm sure you did at home too. Before you leave, I want to point you in the direction of our Coach Academy, which has a number of mini courses broken down into bite-sized chunks so that you can master a load of different aspects of sports science and strength and conditioning. So in the Coach Club at the moment, we can give you free access to our agility course, which means that you can master the fundamentals of agility and enhance your athlete's performance in under 90 minutes. So what you'll get is an in-depth overview of agility, a practical model that you can use today, the must-know fundamentals, a four-level agility framework, guidance on how to practically implement that, and how to incorporate agility into injury and rehab. So if you're interested, be sure to check out the show notes in just a few seconds time. All you have to do is click the link and get your course 100% for free. 
And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks from me. I'm Matt Solomon for Science and Sport, and I'll speak to you next week. <laughs>